0: Hey, everybody take a seat. We're going to do things a little bit different today. You can come up here if you want, but we're going to do things a little bit different. We're going to read a story from the Bible, everybody, only we're going to do it a little bit differently. So everybody's got a part. So where are all my helpers? I got, come on, come on, helpers. So this is the story of of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and as we were studying this week, we realized that this text was written in a certain way. It used certain language so that we would remember it, and we thought rather than just tell you, hey, this text was written in a certain way, and it was used in certain text to remember it, that we would actually do that. We would actually practice more what the author of the text intended, which was something that was read out loud which was something that was repeated, which was something that was participated in. So this is how we're going to read the story. When I say the word or the name King Nebuchadnezzar, that's the purple one. Who's got it? Colton is going to hold up, and everybody is going to go, "Salute." Salute! So if I say King Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to say right. Awesome. Now, if I say the satraps, precepts, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other authorities, we're going to say, oh. hear, hear. Here. <laughs> okay. So a hearty hear, hear for all the authorities. Now, if I read the words, "O oh, peoples, nations, and language groups, that's when we say, Everybody. (laughs) And if I say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're going to go. Okay. So you got it? So here is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. (laughs) So King Nebuchadnezzar had a golden statue made. It was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. He erected it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent out a summons to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other authorities of the province to attend the dedication of the statue that he had erected. So the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other authorities here, here. Assembled, on the tra- uh, assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar so, had erected. They were standing in front of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar so, had erected. Then the herald made a loud proclamation, to you, O peoples, nations, and language groups, The following command is given. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, trigon, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must bow down and pay homage to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has erected. Whoever does not bow down and pay homage will be immediately thrown into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when they all heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the trigon, the harps, the pipes, and all kinds of music, (laughs) all of the peoples, language groups, and nations began bowing down and paying homage to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Now at a certain time, Chaldeans came forward and brought malicious accusations against the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, live forever. You have issued an edict, O king, that everyone must bow down and pay homage to the golden statue Statue, when they hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the trigon, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music. <laughs> and whoever does not bow down and pay homage must be thrown into the midst of the furnace of the fire. But there are Jewish men whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Go team. And these men have not shown proper respect to you, O king. They don't serve your gods, and they don't pay homage to the golden statue that you have erected. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a fit of rage, demanded they must bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Go team. before him. So they brought before the king Nebuchadnezzar, said to them, is it true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that you don't serve my gods and that you don't pay homage to the golden statue that I erected? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the trigon, the harps, the pipes, and all kinds of music. You must bow down and pay homage to the statue that I had made. If you don't pay homage to it, you will immediately be thrown in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. What do you think they did? What do you think they did? Now, and he said, he said this, he said, Who is the God that can rescue you from my power? But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to give you a reply concerning this. If our God, whom we are serving, exists, he is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will rescue us, O king, from your power as well. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we don't serve your gods, and we will not pay homage to the golden statue that you erected. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, And his disposition towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was changed. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times hotter than it was normally heated. He ordered strong soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So those men were tied up while still wearing their cloaks, trousers, turbans, and other clothes and were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. But since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so excessively hot that the men who escorted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were killed by the leaping flames. But those men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the furnace of blazing fire while still securely bound. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was startled and quickly got up. He said to his ministers, Wasn't it three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied to the king, for sure, O king. And it literally says that. Um, He answered, but I see four men untied and walking around in the midst of the fire. No harm has come to them. And their appearance like the fourth is like one of a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire. He called out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerged from the fire. Once the satraps, prefects, governors, and ministers of the king had gathered around them, they saw that these men were physically unharmed by the fire. The hair on their heads was not singed, nor were their trousers damaged. Not even the smell of fire was found on them. Nebuchadnezzar, Exclaim, praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent forth his angel and has rescued his servants who trusted in him, ignoring the edict of the king and giving up their bodies rather than serve or pay homage to any other God than their God. I hereby decree that any peoples, nations, or language groups that blasphemes the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be harmed really bad and and bad things would happen to them. For there exists no other God who can deliver in this way than Nebuchadnezzar, promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's hear it for our helpers. Good morning. All right, there we go. Hey, good morning, everyone. Again, my name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church and get to teach when I'm in town and love it and love seeing everybody here. I'm just really thankful for the chance to be here and share with you this morning about our text, our message, uh, even have some fun with it as we did in the reading. Uh, Many of you know, or or maybe you don't, but our oldest daughter Hope is bar manager at a bar and a restaurant up in Bentonville. And for years, I was a bartender as well, so we have a lot of conversations that revolve around, well, you know, how do you do this? How do you how do, you, how do you be this effectively? Um, and she was relating us a story last night about a young bartender that she was training on how to handle someone who may have had one or two too many drinks. And this person was trying to engage in a conversation uh, with this young bartender. And the young bartender got drawn into the conversation and was trying to rationally discuss issues with this person that had had a few too much or a few too many to drink. And uh, we quickly agreed that one of the one of the cardinal rules of bartending is never argue with a drunk. You just it will never end up well. But I thought, you know, that's not just a rule for bartending. You see, we live in a society where we're all drunk on something. We're all intoxicated with some thing that makes us irrational. I mean, anybody had a rational conversation about politics lately? It's pretty doubtful. But we all have these things that drive us into irrational behaviors, irrational thoughts, emotive responses. We talked about that a little last week. And that's one of the reasons why the practice of Advent is so crucial for us. The practice of Advent is so critical because what it does is teaches us to live soberly. It teaches us to reorient our lives around deeper truths, around something bigger than ourselves, and ultimately, as we'll talk about today, a deeper hope that leads us to live soberly. So as we start this practice this morning, I want to take a few minutes and just sit in silence. And I think it's appropriate, especially on a day like today, when we start Advent. Because if we remember our history, God had spoken through the fire and through the smoke and through the angels and through the prophets. And then as we read scripture, we see this time where all that just stops. And we have this period of roughly 400 years where we have no biblically recorded history of God speaking. 400 years of silence. Silence that was shattered by the advent of Jesus. So as we prepare our hearts to study the scripture, to read this text, Let's sit in silence, our own silence, but also the silence of that waiting, the silence of that preparing, the silence of that longing for God to speak. So join with me, please. God, we are not a people who likes silence or waiting. We have been trained to demand to expect immediate gratification, trained to expect answers to all our questions on our timetable and in a way that we can understand. And we ask this Advent season, that you would retrain us, that you would give us an imagination to wait, to wonder, to anticipate, but also to accept what you offer. Maybe give us new questions, different questions, that we would experience you in a different way, in a deeper way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're not going to read the Scripture again. Again, it's a long passage. Hope you had fun with it. I had a lot of fun uh, reading Scripture that way. But we have to remember that that while that is fun to do, and it almost kind of sounds a little bit like Dr. Seuss at points, this is an incredibly profound text for us as we study what it means to hope. And as we do this, we're going to see that the people of God have an ultimate hope that goes so much deeper than the things we're trained to expect, personal comfort and convenience, even the idea of personal salvation. That the promises of God that formed and shaped the imagination of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that indeed shaped all of the people in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, went far beyond some kind of personal experience. That was definitely included, but it was much, much bigger than that. In the book called The Unnecessary Pastor by the brilliant author and theologian Marva Dawn, she says this. She says, we need to become southerners To read the Bible correctly. Because to inhabit its world is to speak about our lives as y'all, plural, not you, singular. If we could stop thinking about ourselves in individualistic terms and recognize that everything in faith is communal, contingent, and corporate, we would find life and affliction and labor more bearable. I would add to that, we could find a deeper source of hope in a world that defies it. In a world that is constantly telling us to evaluate reality by our own private individual experience. Now, when we stop and think about that rationally, we would say, well, of course we can't do that. Of course, no single person... Could be the evaluator of what is good and bad, or or what is successful or unsuccessful, just on their own personal experience. I mean, we have seven billion people sharing the planet, right? And not only that, that's just the ones that are alive today. What about all those who've lived through history? What about all those that may come after us? How could any one single individual person's experience be used to evaluate ultimately? what is good or bad, what is successful or not. Yet, that's the way we live, isn't it? We live as if the center location of everything is me. I I do that. We even read our Bibles that way. We read it as if it was all about me. And in English, we have this particular problem, right? because the singular and the plural is both the word you. Now, when I, teach, when I teach internationally, this is not so much of a problem, because most languages have different words to express that. And actually, we do, like I said, if we speak properly as Southerners, we have y'all. So next time anybody gets on you for using y'all, just say, listen, this way God talks, Okay. But this idea doesn't fit in our DIY culture, does it? It's, it's, it's antithetical to the do-it-yourself idea. But it is essential that we learn to approach Scripture this way. It opens up meaning and purpose, practice and understanding, in a way that no individual-centered reading can. Ultimately, our growth is going to be stunted and anemic Until we learn to read, imagine, practice, and understand not just scripture, but all reality this way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surely hoped that God was going to rescue them. There's no doubt. They hoped that God would rescue them from the fire. But when we read the words of the text, they also had a sober understanding that so much more was going on, so much bigger than the three of them that they even proclaimed. But if not, but if that's not what happened, they were okay with that. What was that bigger thing, we have to ask? What was that bigger thing that they were hoping in? What was that that bigger vision that would lead them ultimately to sacrifice or be sacrificed? Have their lives taken in order to hope for something bigger. What was it? Was it that God would be happy that they, they sacrificed themselves? I don't, I don't think that was it at all. Was it that they were following some kind of rules, you know? Because it obviously it was a rule, don't bow down <clears throat> to any idols. They knew that from the Ten Commandments, from the Decalogue. Was it just about rule keeping? I don't think so. I think it was something bigger that was going on. You see, the people of Israel's imagination was formed by what we know as the Abrahamic Covenant. It was formed by this idea that God was not just the God of the Hebrews, but He was the God of everybody. And that the Hebrew people were chosen to be the vessel, the vehicle, for proclaiming that universal kingship of God to the world. Their hope resided not that God would bless just them, But as we read in Genesis 12, that through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Everybody, all the peoples, nations, and languages would come to know God as the true king, as the one God, as the only way. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, yes, they were following the rules by not bowing down. But their hope wasn't that, hey, we'll, be, we'll keep the rules and get some brownie points here. It was that somehow, through that obedience, God was going to do something bigger. God was going to do something greater. God was going to do something more than they as individuals would ever experience by themselves. That's what's being talked about here. And we can see as we study this... <clears throat> How this informs our own hope. The older I get, the more that I think of it's just about me, my person, my happiness, my bank account, my health, what happens to me. My world <coughs> shrinks, my world diminishes, and my hope wanes as I feel age creep into my body, as I watch people that I love grow old, pass on, as I watch the way the world treats, we treat each other in this world. If my hope is just for me, just for what I get out of it, just for how it's going to affect me, my hope diminishes. But when I see God active and alive, working through the witness and through the message of the church, when I see people being reconciled, healed, restored. And I understand that that is the promise of God. That is the telos of the church and of all creation to see all things restored, redeemed, recreated. My hope grows with that. Now, listen, to be sure this is going to be challenged. We asked the question in the teaching team this week, what, what, what was it that motivated Nebuchadnezzar's rage because the words here are strong words. I mean he gets word that these three men aren't playing his game, aren't bowing down, and he goes into this incredible rage so bent out of shape. We ask the question, well what would motivate that? And obviously we see ego, control, maybe even a little bit of fear behind that. But we have to be careful if we think it's only ancient Babylonian kings who get bent out of shape when they're challenged. Because it's not. Listen, our American consumerism is much more insidious. It demands obedience through peer pressure, through FOMO, through sales pressures, and when those are resisted or called out, those forces fly into murderous rage when we soberly confront them and resist them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bend the knee to the latest fad, political promise of salvation, or idolatrous invitation to consume at others' expense. Listen Likewise, all of us in this room, we are all similar, similarly called to bow down. With every advertising jingle, almost every song on the radio, everything out there is calling us to bend our knee, bow down, play the game. All of us. And And if our hope is just in our own personal convenience, our own personal comfort, we will not be able to resist. As a matter of fact, we'll come up with great reasons why we shouldn't resist. But just make no mistake, when we resist, we will be opposed passively or aggressively or passive-aggressively. We will be opposed. We asked another question as we studied this. We said, who's the story? Who's the hero of the story? Who do you think the hero of the story is, we told the text? God. God is definitely mentioned. Any other thoughts? Who, who's the hero of the story? Who is the story about? Who shows the most change throughout the story? Nebuchadnezzar, right? Like, I went in thinking, and Pete and I talked a lot about, the like, isn't this about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I mean, aren't they the ones there? But King Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's, who goes from one position to another through the whole thing. We see him as the most developed character, which in a way is really fascinating because what we see then is that demonstrated that God is in control even of the most elevated king, even of the person, if they are tyrannical, bloodthirsty, maybe even out of their mind. We see later Nebuchadnezzar went out, lost his mind. He was crazy. Even that person who we think has so much power and has had so much power given to them by politics or society, God still is able to change their hearts through the witness. And so we get this hope of God being able to do that. And that was kind of the conclusion we came to as a teaching team. But then as I reflected on it more, I thought we really can't short sell Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here. Because I started to think, well, what would I have done? What would I have done if I was put in their position? Now you have to understand, let's, let's do just a stop a little bit for the history here. God's people had been carried off into exile, the temple destroyed, into Babylon, the center of everything that the God of the Bible was against. The way they lived, what they ate, how they they conducted their business, what they wore, everything about it was offensive to the Hebrews. Everything about it spoke of idolatry, sensuousness, violence. And here you have three men. They probably watched their families brutalized. They'd probably been separated from their family. In all likelihood, they had been castrated in order to serve in the king's court, endured incredible hardship to be in this position. And then when they're finally there, they're told look, bend your knee. But it wasn't just a threat. It was also a bride. Because with that bending of the knee came influence, came position, came power, came influence. And how easy would it have been for them to justify the bending of the knee to say, well, God's put me here. And if I've got this position, then maybe I can influence the king's heart. And because God's got me here, maybe I can manipulate the machinery of the the political machinery to make it better for the other Hebrews who are here like maybe I can use this to the advantage of others if I just play the game if I just go along and that's the thing that's so convicting about this story is they didn't now ultimately it turned out well for them in the story They were actually promoted. They got a job promotion out of this once they survived the ordeal. But there was no guarantee of that. There was no guarantee that that's how that was going to turn out. They had a hope in something different than just the pragmatic outcome. They had a deeper hope that their obedience, somehow, whether they saw it or not, whether they understood it or not, would be used by God to fulfill his promise. Alex noted in his message to the worship team this week that in Hebrews 11.1 1, we received this word, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and convinced of what we do not see. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a long honest recollection of history and with their God. They had heard the story passed down through the generations, and they weren't sugar-coated. They involved captivity and death, generational sufferings, and the very real exile of their people. But they also knew the promises of God. They also knew that there was something to hope in that was deeper than just personal convenience, than escaping suffering than being in control. And all this leads me to consider this week as I begin my observance of Advent. What is it that I'm hoping in? Now, I mentioned earlier that we've produced a lot of um, resources for you. If you've, never, if you've never observed Advent, this is a great year to start. Um, we have a kind of a devotional journal for this week that starts with a, a blog post written by James Covington. It's got ways for you to reflect on the back as you go through it. But James, as he often does, changed the end of my sermon by what he wrote or said this week. When he said, really, the question is not, what are you waiting for? But the question, what should you be waiting for? And I think that's the question to us. Grace Church, what should we be waiting for this Advent? What is that thing that should inform our hope? What is that thing we should be fixating on? What is that thing we should be longing for? What is that thing that we should prepare ourselves for the arrival of? What should it be? Is it just more stuff? Is it just relief? Or is it something deeper? Pray with me. Jesus, we, we don't know how to do this. We're not good at waiting. And even when we are, we often wait and hope for the wrong things. I pray that this season you would teach us this deeper hope. And teach us what we should be hoping for. We want this story, this witness of these brothers, so many eons ago to speak to us now and that we might know their story in our own experience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And ask the worship team to come up as we transition now into a time of reflection, a time of taking an offering, sharing with one another the things that God has given us the resources a time of considering the things that have been said here the things that I've said or the things that have come into your heart and mind through the spirit if you need someone to pray with you find that person that you trust in this room to pray with I invite you to participate in the offering participate in giving and ultimately participate in the taking Of the bread and the cup. That deeper hope is reflected in this table. That hope for a regathering, for being remembered, put back together as a body, that the promises of God would be fulfilled in the world through his church, through us. When we participate in that table, in this table, We are being remembered into that body. And then we are being sent into the world as the messengers, the ambassadors, the witnesses. To a greater hope, a greater reality, a sober truth. Which defies the drunken arguments of the world. By our sober witness filled with hope. So thank you for being here this morning.